You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we conclude our series on British explorer Captain James Cook. It has been a heck of a journey, 10 episodes recounting the life of perhaps the most prolific naval explorer in history. So, for today's episode, I will bring us up to the death of James Cook, which is eerily similar to that of Ferdinand Magellan some 250 years earlier. We will wrap up the expedition, and then follow with a look at some of the key people in our story of James Cook, including his family. We will wrap up by discussing Cook's enormous legacy. I have one note for today, and that is there is a map detailing the route of Cook's expedition on our website, explorerspodcast.com. That is it for notes, so let us get going on part 10 of James Cook. Last time, we left Cook and his two ships, Resolution and Discovery, at the top of the world, aka the Chukchi Sea, between Alaska and Siberia, the ice pushing in from the north as winter approached. Cook had tried to find the Northwest Passage, and then the Northeast Passage, but had been stopped by the ice. He was set to return to the Arctic again the following summer to find the Northwest Passage and, if successful, claim the 20,000-pound prize awarded to the man who accomplished the feat. But now Cook needed to get to a place of safety for the winter. He considered the Kamchatka Peninsula on the eastern edge of Siberia, as well as near one of the Russian outposts in the Aleutian Islands. But he knew that food and shelter would be difficult to come by this far north. Plus, there was the bitter cold, which no one wanted to endure for the next half a year. And so Cook decided to return to Hawaii. The people there had worshipped Cook, literally, and there was plenty of food in an agreeable climate. In Hawaii, the two ships could be refitted and reprovisioned, while the men could relax and enjoy the friendly islanders and warm temperatures. And so south went Cook and his two vessels. They stopped in on Alaska, which is one of the Aleutian Islands. The island offered a protected harbor where Cook was able to recaucus ships, which were leaking badly. The British remained in Alaska for three weeks, enjoying friendly relations with the native people. One interesting incident happened when the British were contacted by the local Russian fur traders, who had an outpost on the other side of the island. The two sides would get together, swapping stories, food, and alcohol. They even showed each other the charts of the region. Cook left a letter with the Russians to be delivered to the British Admiralty. In it, he recounted his journey thus far and his plans to return north the following summer. But he also expressed doubt about his chances, saying, quote, I have little hopes of succeeding, end quote. That was Cook, though, determined to press on with the mission because those were his orders. The two ships headed south from Unalaska on October 26, 1778. It was not long before they were hit by some of the worst storms of the entire voyage. The ships caught in a ferocious blizzard. 
In the storms, the topsail of Resolution was shredded, and both ships were badly battered. They even got separated for half a day. Also, John McIntosh, the personal servant to Discovery's captain, Charlie Clerk, died in a fall caused by the bad weather. But once past the storms, the voyage to Hawaii was relatively uneventful. This was, by the way, more than 3,000 miles, or 4,800 kilometers, from the frozen Arctic. The British sighted the Hawaiian Islands, specifically Maui, on November 16th. It was not long after that that the fleet got their first look at the island of Hawaii to the south, which was the biggest island in the archipelago. Hawaii was impressive, featuring a volcanic peak nearly 14,000 feet high, or 4,200 meters. The canoes of the islanders came out to the ships, trading food for metal items, such as nails, knives, and axes. But surprisingly, Cook did not head ashore for nearly eight weeks. Instead, he sailed around the islands, mapping the coasts and searching for the perfect place to make anchorage for the winter. This would, as you can imagine, annoy the heck out of the men. Here they were in a tropical paradise, half-naked women on the shore, and they were putzing around the islands looking for a better parking spot. Cook almost seemed to be taunting the men by not landing. At one point, he completely cut off the booze ration and instead had the men drink a beer concoction that had been made. Thankfully, Lieutenants Gore and King convinced Cook to rescind the grog ban before anything bad happened. Charlie Clerk noted that his boss appeared weary and was in a bad temper, perhaps a sign that Cook was suffering from some sort of illness. It has been suggested that Cook had a stomach-related malady, which would put anyone in a foul mood, but we don't know anything for sure. All of this drama came to an end on January 17, 1779, when Resolution and Discovery sailed into Kealakua Bay, which means Pathway of the Gods, on the western side of the island. This was the perfect location, a protected deepwater anchorage with access to food and water. On one side of the harbor, there were sheer cliffs, hundreds of feet above the water, which were a sacred place where the locals buried the bones of their chiefs. The islanders welcomed Cook and the British with unabashed enthusiasm. Different sources say anywhere from a 1,000 to 3,000 canoes swarmed out to the British ships, carrying as many as 10,000 people. It would have been an incredibly impressive sight. These people had never seen a white man, and the arrival of Cook had led many to believe that the Hawaiians mistook Cook for a god, in this case, Lonau, the god of plenty, meaning fertility, agriculture, rainfall, music, and peace. Now, I want to expand on this idea, because it is important as to what is to come. First, unbeknownst to Cook, he had arrived during the annual festival of Makahiki. This is a homage to Lonau. Second, the symbol of Lonau is a white banner, and the great sails and masts and rigging of the British ships fit this bill perfectly. Third, according to tradition, Lonau traveled around the islands in clockwise fashion, collecting food and tribute during this time. Well, this is the same direction that Cook had been traveling in his meandering around the Hawaiian Islands. And finally, Cook would have cut a powerful figure. When the Hawaiians approached Resolution, Cook would have stood on the top deck, looming over any scene. Clad in his blue uniform, he was tall and older, a stoic, imperious figure above the chaos. Thus, Cook came ashore to throngs of people chanting Lonau. He was greeted by a priest named Koa, who led Cook to a morai, a religious site common in Polynesian cultures. This morai was bigger than anything Cook had ever seen. Here, there was a great welcoming ceremony and feast. The island's king, Kulanyupu'o, I'm not sure if I said that correctly, also treated Cook with reverence and respect, even giving Cook his cloak. A few comments. First, the men of the fleet were thrilled to finally come to a stop. For most of them, this meant trading and sex. Second, we don't know why, but Cook stopped keeping his journal at this point. So what we know of the journey going forward comes from men who kept journals and diaries, such as Lieutenant James King. And third, regarding this idea that Cook was a god to the Hawaiians, I want to elaborate on that. So the idea that Cook was a god to the islanders is something that the British initially suggested. 
The concept has sort of been embraced as fact by many historians since then, and there's reason to believe the notion. However, some have suggested that it's more of a creation by Europeans to fit all that happened into a nice box. There's little attempt to understand the Hawaiian perspective. Some people argue, would a person take Cook as a god, despite the fact that he didn't speak their language or even look like them? It seems to break with common sense. Others counter that these differences are a reason to see Cook as otherworldly or godlike. Now, I'm not going to go into a debate on this subject. You can look those things up online if you want. I'll just say that the Hawaiians did treat Cook with a special reverence. Did they think he was a god? Perhaps, but maybe not. In the end, it really doesn't matter much. What matters is what happens next, and those facts are not really in dispute. So let's keep going. The islanders were, at first, happy to entertain the British. They gave them food, lots of it, and there was sex to be had. However, it was not long before relations between the British and their hosts began to sour. And that is because the Hawaiians didn't have an endless supply of food. Yet the British kept asking for more. I mean, the Hawaiians were happy to help out the newcomers, but it was annoying that they were asking for so much. Also, the local men were soon resentful that their women were off having flings with the crews of the ships. And another thing, when one of the English sailors, an old man named Watman, passed away due to natural causes, it was said the Hawaiians no longer looked at the English with such awe and reverence. The death of Watman had demonstrated to the Hawaiians that these strangers were mere mortals, and thus they were not to be feared. Thus, by February, the islanders were hinting that it was time for the British to move on. They were respectful of Cook, but to the crew, the Hawaiians grew impatient, even belligerent, and thieving became more commonplace. And so, when Cook departed on February 4th, the islanders were happy, sending him off with a feast and gifts of food. And so, you're thinking, okay, Cook is gone. He hasn't overstayed his welcome. All is good, right? Well, unfortunately, Mother Nature would turn the tables on such luck. While on the way to Maui, the two ships were hit by a storm on February 8th. Resolution's foremast broke, and she began to leak badly. Cook had to bring the ship into safe harbor to do repairs. Instead of searching for such a location on Maui, he elected to return to Kealakua Bay. It was a risky move, as Cook knew the islanders were annoyed with him, but he didn't want to risk searching for, and not finding, a suitable location on Maui, and thus back to Hawaii it was. As Resolution and Discovery approached the island, they were greeted by the typical canoes coming out to look to trade. But when Cook sailed into Kealakua Bay, not a single boat came out to greet him. It was a stunning change from three weeks earlier, when thousands of men and women had swarmed out to the fleet. As you have probably guessed, the islanders were irritated at Cook for coming back. Lonau's festival had come and gone, and it was said that people were upset that Lonau was returning, but in the wrong direction. That must be a bad sign. King Kolanyopuo met with Cook and agreed that his people would help with the repairs, which would take about two weeks. A camp was set up on shore. The islanders continued to show respect to Cook, but to the rest of the British, they were aggressive and derisive. Regarding trade, they demanded knives and axes in any deal, and the thieving was worse than ever. The British responded in kind. Charlie Clerk had one thief given 40 lashes for his crimes. Two days later, a British watering party was pelted with rocks. And when I say rocks, I mean rocks tossed by slings, which were powerful and painful, and the Hawaiians were very accurate with them. Resolution's quartermaster, William Hollenby, said, quote, The rascals are becoming very insolent. End quote. In another incident, midshipmen Thomas Edgar and George Vancouver tried to seize the canoe of an important chief, only to end up bruised and bloodied and humiliated by a shower of stones. Cook was outraged by these attacks and warned King Kulanyupuo that he would turn to force if such incidents didn't stop. Well, ultimatums are a sure sign something bad is going to happen, and it did. On the morning of February 14th, 
The men woke to find that one of the longboats of Discovery was missing, stolen in the night. Cook was furious, and he acted accordingly. He ordered his ships to blockade Kealakua Bay, and he primed the cannons. He was not going to let such insolence go unpunished. It was one thing to steal some nails or a hammer, but to make off with an entire boat was a colossal insult. The first thing Cook did was to launch two small boats, one commanded by William Bly. Well, it wasn't long before Resolution's master spotted several native canoes trying to get out of the bay. Bly, who had always advocated a more harsh approach toward the islanders, took aim at the largest of these canoes, which failed to stop even after a warning shot from one of Resolution's cannons. Bly ordered his men to weigh in their oars and take up their muskets, which, by the way, were not loaded with grape shot, but deadly musket balls. Fire, he shouted. The Hawaiian canoe came to an abrupt halt, several men dead and others jumping into the water to escape. Cook's blockade was now underway, the first casualties taken. Cook now decided he was going to go ashore. He would personally lead two boats to the village on the beach and take King Kalanyupuo hostage. Lieutenant Gore was horrified by this plan. The Hawaiians were already gathered on the beach, hundreds of them. It did not look safe. But Cook's blood was boiling at the insult delivered by the islanders. Lieutenant King said Cook was, quote, in a hasty, determined, and extremely angry mood, end quote. At 7 a.m., Cook led his boats towards the shore. He had 13 men with him, including a detachment of Marines under the command of Lieutenant Molesworth Phillips. Cook carried with him a double-barreled shotgun, one barrel loaded with grape shot, the other with ball. The Marines' muskets were loaded with ball as well. This was serious business. Once on shore, Cook, with Lieutenant Phillips at his side and nine other Marines, headed towards the home of King Kulanyupuo. Lieutenant Williamson was left in command of the rest of the men in boats. Kalanyupuo's home was only about 150 feet from the shore, and when Cook arrived, he asked the man to accompany him to resolution. The king appeared unafraid and agreed to this. Also, he knew about the stolen boat and told Cook he would have it returned. However, Kalanyupuo's wife protested, fearing what the British might do to the king, and others began to voice their concern as well. As Cook and his men looked around, they saw the crowd had swelled from hundreds to thousands. The men could sense danger in the air. In close quarters, the British knew they would be easily overwhelmed. Thus, a group of Marines moved off about 100 feet, or 30 meters, in order to have a better field of fire. At this point, Cook was likely comfortable with the situation. The Islanders had always treated him with a high level of awe and respect, and they had never threatened him. And thus far, he had made no threats of his own or committed any acts of violence. Plus, he had the Marines with him. He was sure the natives would never stand up to a volley of musket fire. But remember the canoe that had been fired upon by the British a little earlier? Well, several people had been killed during that engagement, and one of them was an important chief. It was now that word reached the crowd about the man's death. The Hawaiians grew upset, the noise level rising. The islanders began to shout at and threaten the British, including Cook. Cook's men raised their guns. What happened next is somewhat disputed, but no matter the details, the results will be the same. Some sources say that Cook struck an important chief with the flat of his sword, who reacted by jumping at Cook or pushing him. This caused Cook to fall over. The now angry Hawaiians pressed forward, and a warrior named Nua poked at Cook with a knife or a spear, which he had obtained in trade with the British. Cook responded by firing a shotgun, the barrel filled with grape shot. However, Nua had a shield of woven grass, and the grape shot bounced off him harmlessly. Cook then fired the other barrel of the shotgun, killing someone in the crowd. At the same time this was happening, another of the Hawaiians lunged forward and stabbed Lieutenant Phillips, the Marine commander, who also fired his weapon, killing someone. And thus the firing of muskets began in earnest. Some islanders fell, but their numbers were overwhelming. 
Now, at some point in all of this chaos, Cook made a hand signal ordering Lieutenant Williamson to bring the boats up so that the shore party could be evacuated. And this begins one of the great controversies of the day. Williamson took the hand signal as an order to retreat, and thus he ordered the boats out into the water. Some of the men protested, and Williams threatened to shoot anyone who disobeyed. Cook's quick path to retreat was now gone. Hundreds, even thousands of Hawaiians surged forward. The Marines tried to reload their weapons, but most didn't have enough time. They were forced to defend themselves with swords and knives, or turn and rush into the water, swimming for the safety of the boats. The fighting raged all around the British landing party. Cook tried to yell orders to his men, but as he did so, the warrior Nua thrust a weapon forward again, this time piercing Cook squarely in the chest. Cook was seriously wounded, and the Hawaiians pounced. Cook was punched in the face and then sent to the surf for good with a blow to the head by a club. And then other islanders stepped forward, stabbing at the now lifeless body of James Cook. Around Cook, the Marines were clubbed and stabbed. Four would fall dead. Others were wounded, but they made it back to the boats, the sailors providing cover fire for a retreat. The British reported that Cook was the last of the landing party to fall, many of the islanders afraid to attack him due to his supposed holy stature. But with Cook down, the Hawaiians went after his body with a vengeance. It bobbed up and down in the surf for ten minutes, men and women coming up to him, thrusting a knife or a spear tip into his corpse. As I noted, there are shades of Magellan here, the arrogant European believing too much in his own press clippings, dying on a beach amongst the triumphant natives. The bodies of Cook and the four dead marines were hauled off the beach and taken inland. Once the British boats were clear of the beach, the cannons of resolution and discovery went to work pouring shot after shot into the village, the people scattering. And so ends the life of British explorer James Cook. It was, to be honest, an abrupt and inglorious ending for the man many consider one of history's greatest explorers. So here's what we are going to do for the rest of the podcast. First, we'll wrap up the events surrounding Cook's death. Second, we will do a short summary of the rest of the expedition, as resolution and discovery are not done exploring. Third, we will follow up on some of the people involved in Cook's life, such as his family. And finally, we will take a big picture look at Cook, including his life, his voyages, and his legacy. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Captain James Cook was dead. The Hawaiians dragged the body of James Cook and the four Marines off the beach at Kealakehua Bay. The British on board their ships were stunned. Cook was, in the eyes of many, invincible. For more than a decade, he had gotten his men through so much. To have it end in such a sudden and violent way was shocking. As the survivors of the fight on the beach returned to their ships, men could be heard saying things such as, We have lost our father, and our father is gone. So with Cook's death, Charlie Clerk became the commander of the expedition. Many of the men wanted revenge for Cook's death. William Bly wanted to level the village. However, Charlie Clerk had other things on his mind other than revenge. There was still a camp on the island under the command of Lieutenant James King. His priority was to get those men back to the ships as quickly and safely as possible. So as the ships fired on the village, William Bly led a strong party ashore to provide cover for the evacuation. Bly and his men shot any islander on sight. Lieutenant King would eventually meet with Koa, one of the prominent priests. King had been very close to Cook, and the islanders now viewed him as Cook's successor, perhaps even his son. Koa said Cook's body would be returned the following day. And thus the British waited. Regarding Cook's body, what followed is quite the story. The Hawaiians laid Cook on top of a litter and carried him onto the slopes of Mauna Loa, the island's big volcano. That night, Cook's body was placed in an emu, a deep fire pit filled with heated cooking stones. These are traditionally used to roast pigs, but this time it was for Cook. He was disemboweled and baked for six hours to facilitate removal of the flesh, and then his bones were carefully cleaned for preservation. Cook's bones were then split up and scattered about the island, many later to be placed in burial caves on the cliffs overlooking Kealakeua Bay. Some sources say that Cook's heart was eaten by four of the island's most powerful chiefs, but I'm not sure if that is just an exaggeration added by European writers. Now, if you're wondering what this is all about, the answer is that Cook was being honored by the Hawaiians. This was the treatment given to their most powerful kings and priests. It shows that even after Cook's messy ending, the people held a special reverence for Cook. Now, the respect the Hawaiians had for Cook did not necessarily apply to the rest of the British. The next day, a warrior wearing Cook's hat rode out into the bay in a canoe and mooned the British ships, and other men tauntingly waved the red coats of the dead marines from the beach. The men of the fleet wanted to fire on the islanders, but Charlie Clerk wanted to get back Cook's remains and possessions if possible. Thus, he held his fire. Now, that didn't mean if the British were threatened, they didn't respond, and respond brutally. Example, a party sent ashore to gather water was attacked by some natives. The angry soldiers and sailors retaliated by attacking a village, killing numerous people. The heads of the dead Hawaiians were cut off and put on poles, a nasty warning from the English. But it wasn't all revenge and violence. At one point, two islanders swam out to the British ships and proceeded to sing a 15-minute lament to the late Cook. Anyhow, in time, some of Cook's remains were returned to the British. This included a part of Cook's skull, his hands, an arm, and a thigh bone. One of the hands bore the scar Cook had gotten years ago in Newfoundland when a powder horn had exploded in his hand. Cook's shotgun barrel and shoes were also returned, but no uniform. Charlie Clerk would eventually bury Cook at sea on the evening of February 22, 1779, with full military honors. Cook's remains were placed in a small coffin, weighted with cannonballs, and sent to the bottom of the ocean. 
Resolution told her bell and fired her ten four-pound cannons in salute to her fallen leader. And while bits and pieces of Cook were buried at sea, the majority of the man's bones are still high up in the caves of Mauna Loa. At least that is according to Hawaiian legend. And so with Cook dead and buried, the British prepared to sail. The tensions between the two sides faded, and the British were able to finish the repairs and trade for food. There was no thieving or fighting. Charlie Clerk led the two vessels out of Keilakeua Bay on February 23rd. He was prepared to continue the expedition's mission, meaning the destination was the Arctic. As the ship sailed away from Hawaii, 18-year-old midshipman James Trevenden wrote, quote, A universal gloom and strong sentiments of grief and melancholy were very observable throughout our ranks on board the ship on our quitting this bay without our great and revered commander. End quote. The men had lost their captain, and most of them were skeptical about ever finding the Northwest Passage. Thus, a voyage north was met with a decided lack of enthusiasm. Another black mark hanging over the expedition was the condition of its new leader, Charlie Clerk, now in command aboard Resolution. While Clerk was slowly being overcome by tuberculosis, and a trip to the frozen north was likely a death sentence. For now, he remained in command, but he turned over navigation of the ship to William Bly. So, we have covered the aftermath of Cook's death, and now I want to do a short bit about the rest of the expedition. Charlie Clerk led his two ships northwest, landing on the Kamchatka Peninsula. There, the Russians helped him add food and supplies, plus make repairs to the ships. Clerk then headed into the Bering Sea, intent on searching for the Northwest Passage. But Clerk had even less success than Cook had had a year earlier, and by August he was heading back to Kamchatka. It was on August 22, 1779, after reaching Petro Pavlovsk, that Clerk succumbed to the tuberculosis that had dogged him for the past three years. Clerk's death was doubly tragic, as he had caught the disease in debtor's prison just before departing on the voyage. The man was beloved by the crew. He was amiable, fun, and had a great rapport with the men under his command. It was a stark contrast to the often dour Cook. But the two had made a great team. Clerk was immensely capable at his job, and had been fiercely loyal to Cook. With Clerk's death, John Gore took command of Resolution and the Expedition. Lieutenant James King took command of Discovery. The two ships next headed home. They sailed down the Asian coast, past Japan, before making port in Macau in the first week of December. It was here that the British discovered that the furs they had acquired in North America were immensely valuable on the Asian market. A report about the commercial possibilities the fur trade offered, written by Lieutenant King, would later go on to inspire a rush to exploit the region. For the rest of the voyage, the two ships followed the traditional trade route back to England, going around the tip of Africa and then up the African and European coasts. As Resolution and Discovery neared England, a huge storm blew them north, and they ended up making landfall at Stromness in Orkney, which is one of the islands way up on the top of Great Britain, on October 4, 1780. News of Cook's death had already reached London via messages sent months earlier from Kamchatka. The death of James Cook, plus the failure to find the Northwest Passage, meant the return of the expedition was a somber affair. While discovering Hawaii and the extensive mapping of the western coast of North America had been great, few could look at the results and not see a failure. But tributes would come in, including one from Joseph Banks, honoring the work that Cook had done. So with the expedition home, I want to take a little time to wrap up the lives of several key people in Cook's life. From Cook's expeditions, I'll start with John Gore, who led Resolution and Discovery home after the death of Cook and Charlie Clerk. Gore had circled the world several times on his many voyages and had acquitted himself well throughout his career. He was formally given the rank of captain upon his return to England in 1780. 
He was done with exploring after that, taking up Cook's position at the Greenwich Naval Hospital. It is believed that his career prospects were limited by his American birth. Gore died in 1790 at the age of 60. Gore's son, also named John, went on to become a captain in the Royal Navy and was one of the first free settlers of Australia in 1834. Gore's grandson, Graham Gore, went looking for the Northwest Passage with Sir John Franklin some 70 years after his grandfather had done the same thing. He would die in the attempt, along with all 129 men of the expedition. Gore Point and Gore Peninsula in Alaska are named after John Gore. A key figure on Cook's final voyage was William Bly. Bly is probably the best known of all the people who went on Cook's voyages, mostly because of his association with the famed mutiny on the bounty story. Bly was an immensely skilled sailor, navigator, and cartographer, but he also had a bad temper and lacked patience. After Cook's expedition, Bly served with distinction in the Royal Navy, seeing action on several occasions. He eventually received a commission, just like Cook had done. His first command came in 1787, when he was named Captain of the Bounty. Well, that did not turn out well, when in April of 1789, Fletcher Christian led a group of disaffected crewmen in a mutiny, seizing control of the vessel. Bly and 18 of his loyal men were set adrift in the ship's open launch. The mutineers settled in Tahiti and Pitcairn Island, while Bly was left to rot in the middle of the ocean on a small boat. Well, what followed was a master showcase in seamanship, as Bly sailed the small boat more than 4,000 miles, or 6,500 kilometers, to modern-day Indonesia. Bly went on to have a long and distinguished career in the Royal Navy, rising to the rank of vice-admiral. But the bounty incident, and a controversial stint as the governor of New South Wales in Australia, hung over Bly throughout his life and limited his career opportunities. He died of cancer in December of 1817 at the age of 63. As I said, Bly was an extremely skilled sailor and navigator. Unfortunately, he is remembered, due to his portrayal in the movies, as a rigid and stern despot whose actions forced his men to mutiny. And while there's some fact in that statement, the truth is much more complex. Someday we'll maybe do a series on Bly. Another important man on Cook's third voyage that I want to talk about is Lieutenant James King. King took command of Discovery after the death of Clerk and brought the ship home to England. He was very involved in the publication of the official account of Cook's third voyage. King had been an outstanding officer on the expedition and looked like he would have a long career ahead of him. He quickly rose to the rank of captain. However, a few years later, he contracted tuberculosis and died from the disease in 1784. King Island in British Columbia was named in honor of King by George Vancouver, who had sailed under the man. And speaking of George Vancouver, the young midshipman became an officer after returning to England and served with distinction in the 1780s. In 1791, he led an expedition to explore the Pacific. He went to all of Cook's old haunts, Tahiti, New Zealand, Australia, and Hawaii. But it was his time in North America that Vancouver is most remembered for, as he explored and charted the coast of the Pacific Northwest and all the way up into Canada and Alaska. He is credited with being the first European to reach many of the region's prominent locations. Vancouver's fortunes quickly faded after returning from his successful expedition. First, he was dogged by health issues, and second, he got into a public dispute with Thomas Pitt, who had been a seaman on Vancouver's expedition. Pitt had been a troublemaker, getting flogged several times during the voyage, before being sent home in disgrace. The problem was that Pitt was the cousin of the British Prime Minister. With the backing of his family, he began a relentless campaign against Vancouver. Pitt even physically attacked his former commander, although Pitt then got the crap beat out of him by Vancouver's brother. Well, the rich and powerful family of Thomas Pitt, plus lingering health issues, eventually did in George Vancouver. 
He died in obscurity in 1798, just three years after concluding his voyage. There are many places and monuments all over the world that honor Vancouver, including the city of Vancouver, Vancouver Island, and Mount Vancouver, just to name a few. I will probably be doing a series on the man in the coming year. Another person from Cook's final voyage is Lieutenant John Williamson. Unlike King and Gore, Williamson's legacy is not a good one. Remember, he had abandoned Cook on the beach in Hawaii, resulting in his captain's death. Williamson said it was a mistake, but no one believed him, and thus he developed a reputation for cowardice. Lieutenant Molesworth Phillips, who had been beside Cook at Kealakua Bay and had been wounded, challenged Williamson to a duel, but the latter refused to fight. For much of the rest of the voyage, Williamson was shunned by the other officers and crew. Williamson went on to have an interesting life after the expedition. Despite all that had happened, he was promoted on his return, and while he went on to command various ships in the Royal Navy, he was dogged by controversy. At the Battle of Camperdown in 1797, off the Dutch coast, he was criticized for holding back his ship from the fight. As a result, he was tried and convicted of cowardice. This effectively ended his career. He died in October 1798, the result likely linked to excessive drinking. Another man from Cook's final voyage is John Weber, the expedition's artist. Weber made many fine paintings and sketches which survive to this day. He became an associate of the Royal Academy and completed many works until his untimely death in 1793 at the age of 41. David Nelson, the expedition's botanical collector, was praised for the wide number of native birds brought back from Hawaii, the collection still on display at the British Museum. Nelson later sailed with William Bly as a botanist on the bounty. He stayed loyal to Bly and was one of the 19 men who survived the 4,000-mile voyage to Indonesia. Unfortunately, Nelson developed a fever a short time later and died. Mount Nelson in Tasmania is named after him. One other man from Cook's final expedition I want to mention is Corporal John Ledyard, one of the Marines. I don't know if I ever mentioned him in any of the episodes, but I want to talk about him because of his rather fascinating story. Ledyard was actually an American born in Connecticut. In 1773, he had been on a trading voyage when he was impressed by the British into their navy as a Marine. After Cook's final voyage, Ledyard was sent to Canada to fight in the American Revolution. But once there, he deserted and returned home. There, Ledyard wrote a book about Cook's final voyage. It was published in 1783, and it was the first work to be protected by copyright in the United States. Ledyard later tried to capitalize on the emerging fur trade in the West, but never quite hit it big. And then he came up with a bold, perhaps crazy idea, to cross North America. He proposed starting in Russia, then proceeding overland to the eastern coast of Asia. Next, he would cross the Bering Strait and head south through Alaska, and then across the continent to Virginia. It was wildly ambitious, but Ledyard's scheme found backing in people such as the Marquis de Lafayette, botanist Joseph Banks, and most importantly, Thomas Jefferson. Well, Ledyard's plan got underway, and he reached eastern Siberia. But there he was arrested after word of his scheme reached Russian officials. Ledyard was sent back to Moscow and then deported to Poland, ending the affair. Ledyard died in 1789 in Cairo, accidentally poisoning himself to death. He had been trying to get together an expedition to cross Africa. Kudos to the man for thinking big. The final two people I'll mention from Cook's professional life are Hugh Palliser and Lord Sandwich. Palliser was one of Cook's greatest supporters for more than two decades. Without his influence, Cook would never have risen to the heights he attained. Palliser rose to the rank of Admiral and served in the Parliament. Cook named Cape Palliser, Palliser Bay, and the Palliser Isles after his friend and mentor. Palliser died in 1796. And finally, there's John Montague, the Earl of Sandwich. 
Lord Sandwich had been a crucial supporter of Cook's and instrumental in his success as the First Lord of the Admiralty. Sandwich retired from public service in 1782. His career had been controversial at times, often marked by incompetence and corruption. But the man had been a great believer in exploring and expanding British influence throughout the world, hence Cook's voyages. Sandwich died in 1792 at the age of 73. He had led an extravagant lifestyle, even selling the family manor. On his death, his estate was worth less than 700 pounds. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention why John Montague is so famous. And that is because, according to legend, in 1750, the man went looking for a nighttime snack. He put some salt beef between two slices of bread, and voila, the sandwich was born. Other tales say that Lord Sandwich popularized the concoction during long nights of gambling. It allowed him to keep playing cards or cribbage or whatever and still eat. Either way, John Montague, the Earl of Sandwich, is remembered because of his popularizing the sandwich. The South Sandwich Islands in the South Atlantic were named after the man by Cook. And so that is the last person I want to talk about from Cook's professional world. I do want to mention that Cook's famed ship, Resolution, was not long for this world. After Cook's final voyage, the ship was converted into an armed transport vessel. In 1782, it was captured by the French in the Far East. The French sent her to Manila to get supplies, and the ship was never seen again. There are some reports the vessel survived, ending her days as a whaler or as a coal ship in Rio, but no one knows for sure. The other ship in Cook's last expedition, Discovery, spent some time as a transport before being dismantled in 1797. And with that, we will finish this part of the show by talking about the family of James Cook, and it's not a particularly happy story. Three of Cook's children died very young. As for the others, Nathaniel Cook died at the age of 16 on October 3, 1780, just three days before Resolution and Discovery returned to England after more than four years. He had been a midshipman on a 74-gun frigate that went down in a hurricane off Jamaica, along with 13 other vessels. Hugh Cook, the youngest child, entered Christ College in Cambridge intending to be a clergyman. However, he caught scarlet fever and died in December 1793 at the age of 17. Cook's oldest boy, James, went on to become a commander in the Royal Navy, but in January of 1794, James would perish in a small boat when he was caught in bad weather off the coast of England. He was 30 years old. None of Cook's offspring had children of their own. As for Cook's wife, Elizabeth, she outlived her husband and all six of her children. In 1788, she moved into a home with her cousin, Isaac Smith, who had been on Cook's first two voyages. She lived there in comfort for 47 years, dying in 1835 at the age of 93. Sadly, before her death, Elizabeth burned all the letters her husband had written to her over the years, a loss to history. And that, my friends, ends our wrap-up of the people of Cook's world. Let's finish by talking about Cook's legacy. I'll start by saying that we could go on and on about Cook, the good, the bad, the weird, the whatever, but I'll try not to ramble too much. I think the simplest thing I can say about Cook is that he is one of history's greatest explorers. I'm not sure if anyone in all of history covered the distances that Cook traveled. We are not talking about thousands of miles or tens of thousands. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of miles. In those miles, we can add to Cook's ledger New Zealand, Australia, the Polynesian and Micronesian Islands, Hawaii, South Georgia and the Sandwich Islands, and the western coast of North America, from Oregon to the furthest north of Alaska. And then there's the entire circumnavigation of Antarctica. Yes, he didn't actually see the continent, but he demonstrated that if it existed, it was surrounded by a mass of ice. And the remarkable thing is that during much of this, Cook didn't just show up, set down a flag, and then leave. He often did detailed mapping of these places. His maps and charts of New Zealand and Newfoundland would be used for decades, even centuries. 
I love how much of his work is rooted in the eyes of a mapmaker and surveyor. Also, his voyages were a mix of not just exploration, but also of science. His expeditions, especially the first one, were filled with all sorts of work done in the fields of botany, ethnology, astronomy, and more. And the work he did in the polar regions, especially Antarctica, was unprecedented. In doing all of this, Cook set the stage for British colonization of New Zealand and Australia. His dream of Tahiti being a base for the Royal Navy never came to fruition, as the French muscled their way into the region in the 1830s. Cook's voyages also sparked two industries, the fur trade in the Pacific Northwest and the whaling-slash-sealing industry in the South Atlantic and South Pacific. On a smaller note, Cook also scored points for his handling of his crew. His approach to dealing with scurvy was incredible. Not a single man died from the disease aboard a Cook's ship, and the men under Cook's command, especially the first two voyages, loved him. He had a velvet touch with his men, that delicate balance between being loved and respected and being feared. The men trusted their captain, and he got them home safely. Now, I have been lavishing praise for Cook, but what about the negatives? Well, the man had his fair share of issues. The first thing I'll talk about is Cook's dealing with the native peoples he met on his voyages. Many have praised Cook for his benevolence and foresight in such dealings, and at times that is true. Cook seems to have empathized with many of the native peoples he encountered. He didn't automatically treat them as savages, and he demanded his own people treat them fairly. However, Cook seems like the guy who worked to get along with the natives so long as they were compliant. He offered them a rational argument of why things should be as he wanted, but when the natives balked at such things, well, things could go badly. I think that as we look at Cook's career, we see problems arise as he gets older. Perhaps he's just more jaded and skeptical, or he just got tired of trying to get along. But by the time we get to the third voyage, Cook is pretty brutal, including cutting off the ears of thieves. Another thing I want to mention is that Cook did change over the course of his life. He seems to have bought into the James Cook myth after being told over and over about his greatness. This led to an arrogance and boldness in Cook's demeanor as he grew older. I think it contributed to his death in Hawaii. I mean, to walk into a mob of thousands with barely a dozen soldiers at his side was far more stupid than it was brave. It was a brazen act, and he had to know how badly it could turn out. Yet he did it anyway, which is pretty amazing. Now, one thing I want to mention is that men like Cook have been, in recent years, examined with fresh eyes, especially with regards to their part in colonialism. And let's be honest, by opening up these places to the rest of the world, Cook had a big part in the expansion of European influence and power in Australia and the South Pacific. In the context of his time and place, Cook was not this horrible or exploitive man. In fact, he often seems to have had a certain fatherly affection for the native peoples he encountered, and he seems to have understood how contact with the European world would corrupt and alter any society. But Cook's arrival in places such as New Zealand, Hawaii, and Australia were a harbinger of colonialism, exploitation, and upheaval. To these people, Cook and the Europeans that came after him were bringers of bad things. So I think we can acknowledge the amazing stuff done by Cook and acknowledge his attempts to work with the natives he encountered. But I also think we have to understand that Cook, by being the first European to reach these places, is a symbol of bad things to many of the native peoples and their descendants. I mean, if you go to the Cook Monument at Keakalua Bay, it's a frequent target of graffiti. Cook was an invader in the eyes of these people, not some hero. And you know what? That's okay. I think it's fine to understand that there are good and bad things in a person, and there are good and bad effects of the work a person does. And for many people, Cook's amazing work as an explorer and traveler is the starting point for cataclysmic changes in the lives of so many cultures. Knowingly or unknowingly, these things happen when dramatically different cultures interact. 
In the end, when we talk about Cook, we should understand he is very, very human. He had his faults and foibles. He did some stupid, even cruel things, yet he was also smart as a whip and really good at what he did. I mean, really good. I am so impressed by his understanding that exploring was not just about finding places, but also finding all the places in between. And as noted, I loved how he explored with the eyes of a mapmaker and surveyor and cartographer. I'll wrap up by saying that history has, in no way, forgotten about James Cook. For centuries, there have been books written about the guy. There are movies and TV shows. There are a million places named after Cook, including islands, mountains, bodies of waters, cities, schools, parks, a moon crater, and so much more. It's too much to list them all. And we can't forget about all the monuments and statues and memorials. You'll find them in Great Britain, New Zealand, Hawaii, Canada, and many other places. And so with that, we will wrap up the story of Captain James Cook, arguably the greatest naval explorer in history. I hope you've enjoyed this 10-part series. Thank you for joining us. I hope you are well. Please join us next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com for more great shows, including The Team House and This Week in Travel.